Hi, everyone. My name is John Grodin, and I'm a producer here at the Heart's Desire and Social Change. This is the second half of our interview with Father Richard Rohr. If you have not listened to the first half, we recommend that you go back and listen to that one first. You can also find the full video version of this interview on our website. Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. Well, speaking of danger and vulnerability, I want to come back to the cross one more time before we uh, well, go into the you're a holy cross. Holy cross, sorry, come back to the cross. <laughs> um, you've really spent some time looking at this whole traditional notion of substitutionary atonement. Oh and, yes, and then Christ Have paying we got the two hours. No, go ahead. <laughs> so this this notion that Christ paid for our sins obviously yeah. predominates in theology Horrible. and church circles. Yet you've you've said this before that Jesus died on the cross. Not to change God's mind about us, but to change our mind about God. Uh, that's it. Can you say a little bit more about it? A little. <laughs> Don't get me started. Because I think this is a major piece in the corruption of the gospel message. It keeps the whole understanding of the gospel on a transactional level instead of a transformational level. You know, there was a price to be paid. It's almost capitalistic. And what does it do? It makes the father, I talked earlier about how many people have father wounds and are so inclined to believe that all fathers are are not very nice. Uh, Well, then you come along and you make God the father into someone who has to be paid off to love his creation, to love his children. It's a pretty incoherent universe. Now, most people don't think about that, but we've got a a tyrant, punitive father. Secondly, it frames the whole gospel narrative, salvation narrative, inside of retributive justice when the real message is restorative justice. Even God needed retribution. If God legitimates necessary violence. Uh, Whoever you think of God, he's somehow the top. You know, if the one at the top needs necessary violence to love, you know what has happened to culture? You have legitimated good violence all the way down. It's okay. No wonder. I mean, let's be honest. Christian history has been very violent. And I'm ashamed to have to say that, but we didn't have any message of nonviolence. We had to learn it from a Hindu called Gandhi and a black Baptist called Martin Luther King. But in the Catholic tradition, we sort of liked war. (laughs) If, if, If you read, I mean, I'm just being honest about our history. And why was that true? Because we identified with power, with empire starting in 313. And once you're on the side of power, you're always on the side of war. Because <laughs> you have to protect your power. You have to protect your everything. So I learned this now theologically and philosophically as a Franciscan. You Holy Cross Fathers probably don't know this, but we were the only major order that did not accept 
the penal substitutionary atonement theory, which was believed by Thomas Aquinas. And most of you were Thomists, except us. <laughs> I'm bragging we're, a little bit now. We're a young child. We were born much later. <laughs> we were called Scotists. Uh, uh, now, by the way, Gerard Manley Hopkins was a Scotist, and Thomas Merton was a Scotist by choice. And this is one of the major reasons, along with several other things he taught. And uh, he said that, that God could not have come into the world as a mere problem solver. Yeah, I'm back to the transactional notion of reality. That would have made Jesus, God forbid, plan B. It puts us back in charge. Our sin controlled history. You see, and Scotus, brilliant as he was, said, I've got to believe his cosmology or Christology came from Colossians 1, Ephesians 1, John, the first chapter, where he is the image of the invisible God who reconciles all things within himself. Jesus, for us, was plan A. Now, the term for that now is the cosmic Christ. Uh, it's a very different notion of history, where you start not with a problem, not with sin. Now, to tie this up to Scripture, you start with Genesis 1 instead of Genesis 3. I mean, it's really nefarious, uh, wicked, <laughs> that we chose to start with Genesis 3 instead of Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, it says very clearly four times, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. Fifth time, it was very good, the creation story. Uh, then, uh, as we well know, it all seemed to fall apart in chapter 3. But when you begin with a problem, what we call the fall, I, I just look at our 2,000-year history, when you start with a problem, you never get beyond the problem. I just see that in people's lives. People who get, begin with the problem orientation. After a while, they're creating the problem. And you know what the problem was? Sin. This preoccupation with sin as something I did I mean, I grew up with the good Irish nuns, and I love them. But thinking, I caused Jesus to be crucified on the cross, that gives me an awful lot of power that I, I don't think I deserve, you know. Uh, it's, it all pulls it all back into our realm. Whereas what Scotus taught us, I had to study him for four years. He was both a philosopher and a theologian. Uh, but he admittedly is very hard to understand. So I realize why he never became as well-known, uh, even Bonaventure, uh, who is his parallel, uh, was more understandable than, than Scotus. But he, he felt Christ was plan A. Jesus came to reveal the nature of the invisible God. He came to show love, not to solve a problem. And yet, a lot of that, uh, as Christians would say, is this whole atonement theories and the reason why Jesus came was to 
bring us back to God and to help us get into heaven. And yet you say more than that. Um, you, you know, admittedly, you do say that. But on the other hand, you say that the, that the job of a Christian is not just to get to heaven, but it's to become more human. Yeah, you spend a lot of time talking about the importance of of really letting the path, the inner journey, the quest for holiness, really be about becoming more human. What do you say about that? Oh, it's just true. Now, the, the trouble is, it doesn't feel religious. It feels like mere... It sounds hum- like, yeah, humanism. Or, humanism, uh, mere humanism. You know... Uh, aren't you admitting the spiritual journey? Aren't you admitting uh, the, the need to, to grow closer to God? See, if our job is to follow, not worship Christ, but follow Jesus... Uh, then our job is to do what he did. Now, what did he do? He put humanity and divinity together in one body, in one person. But you know what? By every human intuition and perception, he looked like a human being. He just did the human being thing right. He didn't walk around saying, I'm God, I'm God. In fact, he goes out of his way more than any other, and I know you know this, because uh, we have to preach on it so often, what does he call himself? The son of the human. Which, and I don't know why, for God's sake, we translated that the son of man. It sounded like some, you know, esoteric, mystical phrase. It's just the son of the human. I, I'm one of you. I'm the archetype. I'm the model. Again, First Colossians, First Ephesians. Uh, he he is the the one who shows us in visual form in Alpha and Omega by the Big Bang, starting off the Universal Christ, ending with the Christ at the end of history, and that you see in the Book of Revelation. And at both ends, it's a human being. Well, no, not the first isn't a human being, but at the end. It's the perfect, the new man, as Ephesians calls it, without any shame. That's not mere humanism. If we would have taught Christians how to be good human beings, instead of pious Catholics or Baptists or Lutherans, we would have had a lot kinder history. Really. You know, Leonardo the Boff has a quote that I never forgot. He said, Jesus was so human that only God could he have been. Yeah. Wow. So it's, it's a, who said that? This is Leonardo the Buff. Oh, yeah. well, he's one of us. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever meet him? Um, I did not ever no, meet him, no. actually. Brazilian yeah. Franciscan. But uh, he had wonderful Franciscan, exactly. I mean, he oh, told stories. He, he actually knew how to tell narratives. And, and, um, and speaking of narratives, I mean, I think one of the things that's been so great about your work is helping people get in touch with their narratives, their experience, becoming more authentic. And becoming more human, uh, and and part of that is also making this connection between uh, being a human being and one's responsibility with the world, and growing in contemplation, and then letting that bear fruit in action. Uh, you you brought these together very well because I think we both know we've been around activist people who can be very angry yeah. and very difficult yeah. to to live with. Same time, you've been around very pious people who actually really almost don't even notice the the challenges or the needs of the world around us. So bringing those two together is is quite a quite a gift, and it's been something that you've been worked at for many many years. 
And I was just wondering if you could say a little bit more about uh, this connection between contemplation and action. And in particular, I do remember you quoted Rowan Williams, who, when he gave a retreat at the Vatican to, to the, the cardinals bishops, and yeah. bishops, uh, he said something very interesting of the need for contemplation yes. in the consumerist world that we're in. And you said this without rewiring um, our attitudes and behaviors and mindsets. We actually, without contemplation, in other words, we will go crazy. And this is probably part of the mental health it. issue. We really can't yeah. do it. But you said that you quoted this quote from Rowan Williams, I thought it was interesting. Contemplation is the only ultimate answer to the unreal and insane world that our financial systems, our advertising culture, and our chaotic and unexamined emotions encourage us to inhabit. To learn contemplative practice is to learn what we need so as to live truthfully and honestly and lovingly. It's a deeply revolutionary matter. Wow. He is such a wise man. Now, see, we've taught people the catechism, sent them to Sunday school. We gave them a message without a mind that could understand that message. Because almost every major dogma, doctrine of the church is a paradox, is a contrary statements, if you be, I'll just give you a couple of examples. And when you don't give people the mind for it, we almost birthed Western atheism and agnosticism because it can't be experienced then. Uh, the big one, of course, is Jesus is both fully human and fully divine. Your dualistic, rational mind cannot process that. It can't. It just, oh, set it on a shelf. God is one and God is three at the same time. Anybody who's an accountant or a mathematician, that's garbage. That just ain't true. It's religious gobbledygook. You can go, Mary was virgin and mother. Oh, stop it. (laughs) We Catholics just love things like that, you know? Uh, but we don't realize that they, they undid us because we separated experience from belief. And who was it? Was it C.S. Lewis who said, how can I believe 10 ridiculous things before breakfast? <laughs> he said he felt that was the way a lot of Christians understood Christianity, believing unbelievable things. I don't think... They're beyond experience. Once you have the non-dual mind, once you, you'll, in fact, you'll find yourself saying, yeah, that's me too. I'm both human and divine. I'm both simul justus et peccator, simultaneously sinner and saint. I don't know how you can forgive yourself. You're really bad sins, uh, with the dualistic mind. You'll spend the rest of your life holding it against yourself or blaming someone else. So how does contemplation help you go beyond or really take on a new mind, if you will? If the the dualist mind is more the operative mind in society, how does the contemplative mind change that? The contemplative mind keeps you from uh, too quick resolution. 
It keeps you from what we call now rushing to judgment. You keep the horizon open. You, you, you let life be mystery. I'm sure you've heard me say what Karl Rahner said better, that we should stop using the word God for 50 years because we don't know what we're talking about. And we should simply refer to God as holy mystery. And holy mystery is not that which is not knowable. It's that which is infinitely knowable. So you never get to a point, like I'm afraid our fundamentalist brothers and sisters do, I know this uh, desire for absolute rational mental certitude. You get much more comfortable with, well, we call it now a tolerance for ambiguity. With the tolerance for ambiguity, you can let your brother off the hook for one thing. How do you know that was what he intended? You know, little ways like that. You, um, you can live without certitude. The gospel never promised us certitude. Where do we think we got that right? And, I mean, just listen to religious talk. I'm certain that I'm going to heaven. Well, I'm certain that God loves me now. And if God loves me now, why would God change his mind when I die? That's the way I process it. I experience God's love on a daily basis. So I, I don't need some proof from a scripture quote. They back me up. And I love the backup. But um, the search for certitude, what I have called in recent years, the lust for certitude, has really undone Christianity. It's made us very rigid people, very either-or people, very argumentative people, very all-or-nothing people. And if you've ever worked with alcoholics or addicts of any source, they're always all-or-nothing thinkers. I'd be an alcoholic too. It's a miserable way to live when it's, it's either perfect or it's terrible, you know. Lonergan said that, he said there's two types of people in the world. He says there's those who need certainty and there's those who seek understanding. Wow. And I always found that to be uh, kind lovely. of just way of thinking that's that is lovely. whether you have that yeah. rigidity. And yet you've often said, this is another quote that's really stayed with us, is that we don't think our way into new ways of living. We actually live ourselves into new ways of thinking. Yeah, you've got to plant yourself in different contexts where your biases aren't constantly confirmed and validated by other redneck Kansans. I'm from Kansas. Uh, as long as you s surround yourself with people who are just like you, you will never think different thoughts or new thoughts. Someone has to be able to question your assumptions or to live with a different set of assumptions, and at first you want to harshly judge them, and then if you stay with it long enough, I remember my deacon year in Cincinnati, I worked at the Catholic worker in the soup kitchen, and so many of the people who turned me off, well, at the jail here too, in the first days, by the end of a several-month period, I knew their humanity, and I, I could forgive them, love them, 
be patient with them. But if I would have avoided the Catholic worker, the soup kitchen here in Albuquerque, the jail, if I was in a black parish uh, also, and I was out here with the Indians at Acoma Pueblo. So God just immersed me in a whole bunch of otherness. So I, uh, I couldn't think that the white German Catholic way was the only way. So that's living yourself into a new way of thinking. That lifestyle. Lifestyle is what finally makes the difference. Now that was very Franciscan. Francis uh, told us not to really preach to the world. The Dominicans did that, preach to the poor, but to go and live among them. That was very clear. And Francis is, in 13th century, is the first one who makes that clear to the universal church. Not preach to them, but share life with them. That changes everything. Well, Richard, there's so much more to talk about, and, and I think you've just uh, given us so much to think about over the years. This is obviously not your first rodeo. You've been doing this for, for decades I and decades. I not know how to do a rodeo. But it... <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, I was wondering, you know, we were speaking with Parker Palmer a few oh, weeks ago. and man. Parker, uh, you know, uh, talks about, he's written this book on aging and about growing old, and he has this new book called On the Brink of Everything. Oh, yeah. So he talks yes. about really the gift of growing old. And he, uh, he really leaves you with a question, which is, uh, is working with an artist, working with a songwriter. The question that he was asked is, how will your music play on? Mm. So as you look at the notes you've played over your lifetime, and if you looked at the songs you've really tried to write, uh, what is the music that you'd like to live on with your own melodies? Well, I'm going to give you a, a phrase. Um, but it's all based on a spirituality of imperfection. As long as we keep defining the gospel as a journey toward perfection, we're going to eliminate most people from the good news. Because that's perfection is a divine quality, not a human quality. And that's why Francis and Therese of Lisieux are my primary patron saints. Because they both got the journey of imperfection. Uh, so I told a, a crowd a few years ago here in the city that God allowed me to do everything wrong. And that's not being pious. I think by strictly according to the law, I've broken all Ten Commandments and all three vows and so that God could do everything right. You don't know God doing right by you until you've done wrong by yourself. Huh? You don't have any need for mercy. You don't have any need for, for forgiveness. I think that's the sin against the Holy Spirit, to think you don't need forgiveness. Well, why should I need forgiveness? I, I go to Mass every Sunday. <laughs> we've done history a very great disservice in preaching this gospel of perfection. And it, it's kept us from learning how to love our neighbor. Because not only do we hate our own imperfection, we hate theirs. It's, 
It's contagious after a while. Well, Richard, I want to thank you again uh, for taking the time to speak with us, uh, but also the ways that your your lectures, your podcasts, your uh, your MP3s, your cassettes. I used to listen to you way back when we had cassettes and all these audio conferences. So uh, you've been a a great guide to me (laughs) and I know to so many. So, Richard, thank you for uh, the different ways you've illumined this path to the heart's desire, the call to social change, but the way you've done it, you know, not only what you do and what you perform, but who you are. And so thanks for the way you've given witness to the God of life and the God of mercy and the God of love. You're the humble one coming from the great Notre Dame. To listen to me. Well, I always say Thank that. You. I always said that I, uh, when I was young, I wanted to win a gold medal in the Olympics. As I got older, I wanted to go to the Golden Dome. But in the end, I wanted to develop a golden heart. Oh so my So thanks gosh. for the ways in which you've revealed that to us. Isn't that beautiful? So, wow. So, uh, wow. any event, making God's heart invisible, the invisible heart of God visible to the world. That's what you've done, yeah. Richard. So. So thank you for being with us. This is more about you than me. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for being with us today in this podcast for the Heart's Desire and Social Change. Uh, We'll continue to explore some of these questions with people who are leaders in the field and ways in which which we can explore uh, meaningful conversations about things that matter. So thank you for joining us and hope you can stay with us in future episodes.